and welcome back to Reading the Church Fathers. We have moved on from St. Clement of Rome's epistle, as well as the epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. Today we are going to be getting into a more familiar figure that people have heard of and maybe done some apologetics work with the existence of this figure. He is Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. It is theorized by some theologians and church historians that when St. John writes the book of Revelation, the message to the angel to the church of Smyrna, given that angelos means messenger, was actually written to Bishop Polycarp who he learned at St. John's feet. We have some of the writings of Polycarp, which means we have the writings of a man who learned at the feet of an apostle. And not just any apostle, the apostle whom Jesus loved, who was very enthusiastic about giving the direct story, some of the more, what used to be called the Disciplina Arcanum, the idea that the synoptic gospels don't go into the divinity of Jesus and sola fide as much as St. John's gospel does. And whether that's valid, Polycarp has something of the inside story and fantastic training on account of his association with St. John. So we will be starting with the epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians in which he writes to the church at Philippi from Smyrna. It's maybe on the shorter side. We could finish it tonight. We might have to take two recordings. We'll see how far we get. The introduction reads, Polycarp and the presbyters with him to the church of God sojourning at Philippi. Mercy to you and peace from God Almighty and from the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior be multiplied. Chapter 1. Praise of the Philippians. I have greatly rejoiced with you in our Lord Jesus Christ, because ye have followed the example of true love as displayed by God, and have accompanied, as became you, those who were bound in chains the fitting ornaments of saints, in which are indeed the diadems of the true elect of God and our Lord. And because the strong root of your faith, spoken of in days long gone by, endureth even until now, and bringeth forth fruit to our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sins suffered even unto death, but whom God raised from the dead, having loosed the bands of the grave in whom, though now ye see him not, ye believe, and believing, rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, into which joy many desire to enter, knowing that by grace ye are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. A few things to note before we move on to chapter 2. St. Polycarp is absolutely drenching this first chapter alone with scriptural references and quotations. And not Old Testament quotations, 
He's filling them with quotations from the New Testament, which gives us a good picture of a circulation of the word during his time. He brings up your faith spoken of in days long gone by. That is from Philippians 1 verse 5. When he writes, whom God raised from the dead, having loosed the bands of the grave, that is straight out of Acts 2, verse 24. In whom, though now ye see him not, ye believe, and believing rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That is a direct quote of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And then when he says, by grace ye are saved, not of works, we should hopefully all recognize that as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What this tells us is that the early church recognized the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures. They saw the epistles and even the book of Acts as authoritative holy scripture, something that informs the Philippian church. Now we move on to chapter 2. An exhortation to virtue. Wherefore, girding up your loins, another First Peter reference, serve the Lord in fear and truth, as those who have forsaken the vain, empty talk and error of the multitude, and believed in him who raised up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him glory and a throne at his right hand. To him all things in heaven and on earth are subject. Him every spirit serves. He comes as the judge of the living and the dead. His blood will God require of those who do not believe in him. But he who raised him up from the dead will raise up us also, if we do his will and walk in his commandments and love what he loved, keeping ourselves from all unrighteousness, covetousness, love of money, evil speaking, false witness, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, or blow for blow, or cursing for cursing. But being mindful of what the Lord said in his teaching, judge not, that ye be not judged. Forgive, and it shall be forgiven unto you. Be merciful, that ye may obtain mercy. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And once more, blessed are the poor and those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now at first glance, for us Protestants anyway, our ears might perk up. We heard in no uncertain terms St. Clement advocating for sola fide, and for us being saved by grace alone. However, Polycarp here, in a seeming disagreement with Clement of Rome, is saying, well, whoever wants to be risen from the dead and to be with Christ says, he who raised him up from the dead will raise up us also if we do his will and walk in his commandments. It sounds almost like a contradiction between two associated church fathers, St. Clement of Rome and St. Polycarp. 
Let's read on to see if that's indeed the case. Chapter 3. Expressions of Personal Unworthiness These things, brethren, I write to you concerning righteousness, not because I take anything upon myself, but because ye have invited me to do so. For neither I nor any other such one can come up to the wisdom of the blessed and glorified Paul. He, when among you, accurately and steadfastly taught the word of truth in the presence of those who were then alive. And when absent from you, he wrote you a letter which, if you carefully study, you will, be, you will find to be the means of building you up in that faith which has given you, in which, being followed by hope and preceded by love towards God and Christ and our neighbor, is the mother of us all. For if anyone be inwardly possessed of these graces, he hath fulfilled the command of righteousness, since he that hath love is far from all sin. Oh, so now, St. Polycarp, who learned at the feet of St. John the Apostle, steps back a bit from his harsher statement speaking about going to heaven or witnessing the good resurrection on account of our good deeds and our righteousness, our virtue, when he says that it is that faith and the love toward God and our neighbor, the attitude, the disposition, he calls them graces, unmerited favor given to us through which our Lord fulfills the command of righteousness. Again, since he that hath love is far from all sin. It appears to me that Polycarp is being careful in his speech regarding soteriology admitting that our personal virtue, any righteousness on our part, is, to a large extent, alien to us. This is something God gives to us and counts us as having as we are sanctified through this process of life. But he continues on having a little bit more of a didactic tone than St. Clement of Rome, whose main purpose was to reestablish harmony in the Corinthian church. Chapter 4 of the Epistle to the Philippians But the love of money is the root of all evils. Knowing, therefore, that as we brought nothing into the world, so we can carry nothing out, let us arm ourselves with the armor of righteousness, and let us teach, first of all, ourselves to walk in the commandments of the Lord. Next, teach your wives to walk in the faith given to them, and in love and purity, tenderly loving their own husbands in all truth, in loving all others equally in all chastity, and to train up their children in the knowledge and fear of God. Teach the widows to be discreet as respects the faith of the Lord, praying continually, for all being far from all slandering, evil speaking, false witnessing, love of money, and every kind of evil, knowing that they are the altar of God, that he clearly perceives all things, and that nothing is hid from him, 
neither reasonings nor reflections nor any one of the secret things of the heart. Another thing to note here, and again, Polycarp's writing teaches us so much about the early church. He commands husbands to teach their wives the faith and to teach them and exhort them to walk in the faith. The early church respected the household and respected husbands, the heads of household, to function something like the priest of a family. A husband is to bring his wife and his children up in the word and up in the way that our Lord Jesus Christ gives us. Chapter 5. The Duties of Deacons, Youths, and Virgins Knowing, then, that God is not mocked, we ought to walk worthy of his commandment in glory. In like manner should the deacons be blameless before the face of his righteousness, as being the servants of God and Christ, and not of men. They must not be slanderers, double-tongued, or lovers of money, but temperate in all things, compassionate, industrious, walking according to the truth of the Lord who was the servant of all. If we please him in this present world, we shall receive also the future world, according as he promised to us that he will raise us again from the dead and that if we live worthily of him, we shall also reign together with him, provided only we believe. In like manner, let the young men also be blameless in all things, being especially careful to preserve purity, and keeping themselves in, as with a bridle, from every kind of evil. For it is well that they should be cut off from the lusts that are in the world, since every lust warreth against the spirit, and neither fornicators, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, read sodomites, shall inherit the kingdom of God. For those who do things inconsistent and unbecoming, wherefore it is needful to abstain from all these things, being subject to the presbyters and deacons as unto God and Christ. The virgins also must walk in a blameless and pure conscience. Note here, again, St. Polycarp speaking with a very careful language. He confesses that he will raise us again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, and that if we live worthily of him, we shall also reign together with him, provided only we believe. It might sound at first glance that Polycarp is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Are we justified and saved by living worthily of Christ's calling? Or are we justified and saved solely by belief? Which one is it, we might ask, St. Polycarp? If you ask me, I believe that he is speaking as carefully as possible to not leave his wheelhouse, as it were. Remember, he was the bishop of Smyrna, not of Philippi. He was not the pastor of Philippi. So he's bringing up what scripture teaches, 
and allowing, in all likelihood, the pastor to square these circles for the laity. Chapter 6. The Duties of Presbyters and Others And let the presbyters be compassionate and merciful to all, bringing back those that wander, visiting all the sick, and not neglecting the widow, the orphan, or the poor, but always providing for that which is becoming in the sight of God and man, abstaining from all wrath, respect of persons, and unjust judgment, keeping far off from all covetousness, not quickly crediting an evil report against anyone, not severe in judgment as knowing that we are all under a debt of sin. If then we entreat the Lord to forgive us, we ought also ourselves to forgive. For we are before the eyes of our Lord and God, and we must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ, and must every one give an account of himself. Let us then serve him in fear, and with all reverence, even as he himself has commanded us, and as the apostles who preached the gospel unto us, and the prophets who proclaimed beforehand the coming of the Lord, have alike taught us. Let us be zealous in the pursuit of that which is good, keeping ourselves from causes of offense, from false brethren, and from those who in hypocrisy bear the name of the Lord, and draw away vain men into error. Now it has been said that the visiting office of the pastor at some point may have been neglected. It doesn't seem to be the case here from St. Polycarp's writing, that he would enjoin presbyters, which includes pastors, any elder in a church, to visit the sick and the orphan and the widow, and those who are not attending church, those who wander off. Meaning, the pastor is not to be some ivory tower teacher sitting there saying, hum, 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 I'm a theologian and a pastor. My job is wood and sacrament. I do nothing else. No, the pastor and any presbyter in the church, any elder, must indeed be an active member of that church who cares for those in his flock. He has to get his hands dirty a little bit. Chapter 7. Avoid the Docetai and persevere in fasting and prayer. For whosoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. 1 John 4, 3. And whosoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whosoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lust and says that there is neither a resurrection nor a judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. Wherefore, forsaking the vanity of many and their false doctrines, let us return to the word which has been handed down to us from the beginning, watching unto prayer, and persevering in fasting, beseeching in our supplications the all-seeing God, not to lead us into temptation, as the Lord has said, the spirit truly is, weak, is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Now, the proper term for the men who were refusing to confess that Jesus came in the flesh is docetai, the docetists who believed that Christ's body was some sort of illusion. They didn't think that he was truly crucified on the cross. They thought it was silliness to say that the Son of God would be crucified. And though they might claim that Jesus was divine, which is proper, they, they denied his humanity, that he had a body. St. Polycarp here says in no uncertain terms, those people belong to the devil. Chapter 8. Persevere in hope and patience. Let us then continually persevere in our hope, and the earnest of our righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but endured all things for us, that we might live in him. Let us then be imitators of his patience, and if we suffer for his name's sake, let us glorify him. For he has set us this example in himself, and we have believed that such is the case. Chapter 9. Patience Inculcated I exhort you all, therefore, to yield obedience to the word of righteousness, and to exercise all patience, such as ye have seen set before your eyes not only in the case of the blessed Ignatius and Zosimus and Rufus, but also in others among yourselves, and in Paul himself and the rest of the apostles. This do in the assurance that all these have not run in vain, but in faith and righteousness, and that they are now in their due, placed in the presence of the Lord, with whom also they suffered. For they loved not this present world, but him who died for us, and for our sakes was raised again by God from the dead. And finally for tonight, this will probably be a two-parter, chapter 10, Exhortation to the Practice of Virtue. Stand fast, therefore, in these things, and follow the example of the Lord, being firm and unchangeable in the faith loving the brotherhood, and being attached to one another, joined together in the truth, exhibiting the meekness of the Lord in your intercourse with one another, and despising no one. When you can do good, defer it not, because alms delivers from death. But be all of you subject one to another, having your conduct blameless among the Gentiles, that ye may both receive praise for your good works, and the Lord may not be blasphemed through you. But woe to him by whom the name of the Lord is blasphemed. Teach, therefore, sobriety to all, and manifest it also in your own conduct. Now we finish right there regarding the actual reading of Polycarp's epistle, because there is something to be addressed regarding our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends. We have to ask, as we read the Church Fathers, how did we get the history of the Church from them? What does this teach us about the early Church and how it developed? For instance, 
the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church both highly prize and value virginity. Of course, we Protestants do as well, but up until the point of marriage, and we believe that uh, most people should be getting married, especially clergy. But he says in chapter 5, the virgins also must walk in a blameless and pure conscience. Some might see a statement like that as advocating the office of the nuns, the female um, monastery-dwelling women or those who would attend various priests and assist them. That may be the case. It could also be that various young women, for one reason or another, were kept under the guard of the church if their parents had been martyred or if they were orphans by some other circumstance referred to as the virgins because a close watch was kept on these young people for the sake of, well, keeping them from wandering off according to the lusts and the various groups in the world that would try to snatch them out of the church's hands and lead them into sin and error. Another thing to bring up is fasting, in which St. Polycarp says, Wherefore, forsaking the vanity of many and their false doctrines, let us return to the word which has been handed down to us from the beginning, watching unto prayer and persevering in fasting. We do have to confess, we Protestants, who typically don't emphasize fasting as much, that the church has always practiced fasting. It simply has. The question of the form of this fasting, and the question of whether it was imposed by hard command or merely encouraged as good practice for Christians, perhaps in Polycarp's words, uh, duly encouraged, duly exhorted to say, you should be doing this. Let us persevere in it. Yes, the church has always practiced it. But a question we would raise to our Roman Catholic and Orthodox friends is, are Christians required to do so? Is St. Polycarp here saying that in accordance with the a required practice of fasting, one gets closer to seeing the tabor light or closer to reaching such a state of grace that they can lend their merit to others, which we would disagree with. But there is, and this is uncontested, a respect for the hierarchy in the church. To my credit, as a more hyper-congregationalist type, yes, the head of household, the patriarch of a family, does inhabit a teaching office in the church insofar as that applies to his family. But nonetheless, he does say in chapter 5, it is needful to abstain from all those things, all the self-abuse and things that bar somebody from inheriting the kingdom of God but being subject to the presbyters and deacons as unto God and Christ. There are some of our fellow Protestants who do have a kind of anarchic leaning, believing that there is no such thing as authority or hierarchy in the church. 
I would wager that it is the local church, the local elder and presbyter and deacons, which do have that hierarchy. Nowhere does St. Polycarp tell these people, obey me, because I am Polycarp, because I am the Bishop of Smyrna. He sees himself more like a servant to those who do have authority over their congregations. It does appear that while hierarchy in the church is respected, and the laity are urged to obey those ministers set over them, he is not lording it over them, his own authority as a bishop, in the same vein as we might expect from some of the later writings of Orthodox and Roman Catholic bishops. At some point, however, in the Church Fathers, this will change. Here's hoping at some point we can get to that and discuss what changed exactly. But next week we will bring in chapter 11 and continue this peek into the past of the church with somebody who was intimately acquainted with an apostle that trained him every single day. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. Amen.